Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion stops here. June is the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, so a little later on in the program, we're going to talk about the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart, but especially as a guide to prayer, and not only in June, but all year round. Also, last Monday's Holy Mass in the ordinary form was the Memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church. And this liturgical celebration was instituted by Pope Francis in the year 2018. And that title of Mary was very near and dear to the heart of St. John Paul II and St. Paul VI. So we're going to be talking about that also. And finally, while in virtually every measurable way the Catholic Church has been in steep decline for decades, there is one particular sector of the Church that's actually flourishing today. And... If we have time, I'll tell you not only which part of the church is growing, but more importantly, why. But in the meantime, I'm going to start by looking at one of the treasures of our, our tradition, namely sacred relics. Uh, you know, for a lot of converts to the Catholic faith, especially converts from evangelical Protestantism, like uh, Dr. Scott Hahn or, or Steve Ray or Tim Staples and a host of others, their one big stumbling block on their way into the church is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the emphasis that Catholics put on Mary, and it's probably because of a uh, theological misunderstanding of our Lord's role as the sole mediator between God and man, as uh, St. Paul says in the book of Hebrews. But for me, as a convert who was, you know, kind of generically Christian, but essentially unchurched, I never had any issue with Mary or the Pope or the sacraments or prayer to the saints or any of that, because I was evangelized in a Catholic context, that is to say, within the fullness of the faith. But there was one thing that struck me as kind of particularly odd, and that was the Catholic reverence. For the Welcome to saints. Mother Miriam Live. Wow. That sounds like Mother Miriam's Mother show family. starting. How are hey, you that doing? Um, I pray that you are If you're all hearing that, then you're not hearing. There it goes. Thank you. Uh, yeah, what I was saying is one of the things that struck me odd about the Catholic faith was reverence for relics. And so... Let's start at the beginning there. What is a sacred relic? Well, a relic is just any object that was connected with a saint. And so the church uh, divides them into three classes, as you probably know. The first class relic is an actual part of a saint's body, some fragment of their uh, remains. And you probably also know that every uh, Catholic altar has an altar stone where the consecration takes place. And in that altar stone, there's a relic of one of the saints. And this kind of memorializes the practice of the early church uh, in Rome during times of persecution when Mass was held in the catacombs and the Eucharist was celebrated on the tombs of the martyrs. So Holy Mass was being celebrated over the remains of the saints from the very earliest times. But the veneration of relics actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 13, there's a story about the prophet Elisha. It says, Elisha died and was buried. And every year, bands of Moabites used to invade the land of Israel. And one time during a funeral, one of those bands was seen, and the people threw a corpse into Elijah's tomb and then ran off. But as soon as the body came into contact with Elisha's bones, the man came back to life and stood up. So there you have a miracle associated with a first-class relic of a saint. Now, a second-class relic is something that, the, that was used during the saint's life. So a piece of clothing or some personal possession, their missal or their rosary or whatever. And, and once again, the Old Testament records a miracle story of a second-class relic. Uh, once again, in the book of Second Kings, chapter 2, and this time it's the prophet Elisha using the prophet Elijah's mantle to miraculously part the Jordan River. Second Kings, chapter 2, 11 and 14, it says, Wielding the mantle which had fallen from Elijah, he struck the water. And when Elisha struck the water, it divided and he crossed over. And then finally, we have third class relics, which are objects that have just been touched to a first class relic. For example, when I was in Quito, Ecuador, you know, the sisters gave me some prayer cards with bits of cloth attached to them uh, that had been touched to the body of servant of God, Mariana of Jesus. And I also have like a Padre Pio medal that has a little cloth on the back that was touched to his remains. And once again, the Bible mentions these kind of third class relics, and again, in a miraculous context. 
uh, in Acts 19, we read, uh, so extraordinary were the mighty deeds, that is the miracles, that God accomplished at the hands of Paul, that when face cloths or aprons that touched his skin were applied to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And in Acts 5, verses 12 and 15 and 16, we read an even more startling account that says, many signs and wonders were done among the people at the hands of the apostles, in verse 15. Thus they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on one or another of them. And a large number of people from the towns in the vicinity of Jerusalem also gathered, bringing the sick and those disturbed by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. So the veneration of the relics of the saints actually flows from the veneration of the saints themselves as models of God's grace and love and, and holiness. And in the sacramental view, material things can impart God's grace. And virtually all Christians believe this uh, with regard to the water of baptism in some sense. And Catholics believe it also uh, with regard to the bread and wine that become the body and blood of Christ uh, at the Holy Mass. Relics reflect this principle, or even our Lord himself using, using mud made from dust and spittle to, to uh, cure the man born blind. Okay? But what about our Lord and his blessed mother? Of course, there are no first-class relics of Jesus and Mary, because Jesus ascended bodily into heaven and then later assumed Mary, body and soul, into heaven as well. So for those Catholics, or non-Catholics, I should say, who think that the assumption of Mary is a teaching that the church just made up centuries after the fact, <clears throat> just the very absence of any first-class relics of Mary speaks volumes. Because of all the saints, she is the most important, the most highly venerated, yet no church anywhere ever claimed to have a first-class relic of Mary. Now, second-class relics uh, abound. You know, there's various churches that claim to have Mary's veil or her slipper or her comb, perhaps a vial of her tears and so on. And one of the most striking must be the Holy House of Loretto. Tradition holds that the Holy House of Mary, where, where she was born, where the angel Gabriel announced the, the coming of the Savior, right? That that house arrived in Loretto, Italy on December 10th, 1294, carried by the hands of angels from Nazareth in the Holy Land as the Crusaders were driven out of Palestine at the end of the 13th century. Now, countless Catholics have made pilgrimages to the Holy House, including uh, Galileo and Mozart and Cervantes and St. Therese of Lisieux, among others. But what about our Lord? Now, as we've just learned, you know, something for something to be considered a first-class relic, it has to be an actual part of the body of a saint, like a bone, for example. But in the case of our Lord, anything directly associated with the events of his life is classified in the highest rank. And there are several that claim our attention. For example, there are many fragments of the True Cross in various churches around the world. Uh, the True Cross was actually found by St. Helena. And fragments have spread all over Christendom, including those that are kept in the imperial treasury of Vienna, Austria, which I mentioned because that same imperial treasury also boasts the Holy Lance, the spear that uh, pierced the side of Jesus when he was on the cross. The Holy Nails of the Crucifixion, are, are another relic of the Passion. And one of the nails that was used in the crucifixion of Jesus is in a, a very splendid reliquary at the cathedral in Bamberg, Germany. Also in Germany at the cathedral of Trier is what's uh, claimed to be the seamless robe of Jesus that the Roman soldiers gambled for during his crucifixion. As prophesied in Psalm 22, 19, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Uh, let's see, the gifts of the Magi, gold, frankincense, Says in Myrrh, of course, kept at St. Paul's Monastery on Mount Athos in Greece. The crown of thorns uh, is kept at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. The pillar of the flogging, right, the pillar where Jesus was tied while he was scourged, is kept at the Basilica of St. Praxedes in Rome. The, the titulus crucis, which is the sign that hung uh, above Jesus on the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, that's actually kept in Rome at the Basilica of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem. And that's especially um, interesting, because not only is it a relic of the Passion, but it was actually, when you think about it, this was the first written proclamation of the kingship of Christ, written by uh, Pilate, of all people, as you recall, who, who said, uh, what I have written, I have written. 
And then um, one of my favorites, something I've given a talk about for many years, is the Holy Grail, the chalice that was used by Christ at the Last Supper to institute the Eucharist, which is kept in a chapel at the Cathedral of Valencia in Spain. And then I think most important of all, the Shroud of Turin, which is the burial cloth of Jesus and is kept in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin. And I, I should mention there's a nice collection of photos of all these relics and others on the Church Pop website. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes when they post this podcast. Now, the Church does not absolutely uh, claim for all, all these relics to be authentic. But they have all been investigated, and they have all been deemed worthy of veneration. Now, for example, the Holy Grail, which is the thing that I've done the most research on, in the year 1959, um, evidence was given to the Holy See, and John the Twenty-Third signed a proclamation that that says that there is no historical impediment for the Chalice of Valencia to be the Holy Grail. In other words, this is a chalice from the first century that most certainly could have been at the Last Supper. That doesn't mean that it was necessarily, but there's no reason, I mean, there's no scientific reason to say, oh, that can't be it. And so then you go to the tradition of the church. And we have a paper trail leads all the way back to the second century where uh, um, Pope Sixtus II gave the Holy Grail to St. Lawrence to smuggle out of Rome. So relics, one of the true treasures of our tradition, and that is no nonsense. Coming up, the Memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church, and when we come back, the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart of Jesus as a guide to prayer for today. Don't miss it. We'll be right back with lots more after this. Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. Healthcare news today seems to be coming from everywhere and everyone. It's confusing, at least, and untrustworthy at the worst. Dr. Aceta is a faithful Catholic in the Kern County community. He is trustworthy, well-researched, and will only give expert opinion on matters in his own specialty. Catholic teaching at its entirety is of utmost importance to Dr. Aceta. Give Dr. Aceta a call for your obstetrics and gynecological needs at 661-695-6617. 661-695-6617. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Twelve Promises of the Sacred Heart as a Guide to Prayer. You know, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your weekly source for Keep It Simple Catholicism. I'm Matt Arnold for VMPR. One of my favorite prayers has long been a prayer to accept God's will that begins, O Lord, I do not know what to ask you. 
You alone know my true needs. And I suspect many Catholics, maybe even you, want to know God's will for their life. But you just don't know what to pray for. And June is the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Yesterday, when I was meditating on the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart that our Lord gave to St. Mary Alacoque, for all those who would honor his Sacred Heart. And I was looking at a little book on the promises of the Sacred Heart by Father Lavosic. You know, those, those old Father Lavosic books for children from Catholic Book Publishing Company are a real treasure. And I realized that in those promises, our Lord offered us a profound guide to what to pray for in our lives. And if you promise something, then we should be praying for it. So I wanted to share you that with you today. You know, I'll give uh, the first promise is I will give to my faithful all the graces necessary in their state of life. So the first thing to pray for is the graces that we need in our life. We believe the graces won by Christ on the cross are communicated to us through the sacraments of the church, most often in Holy Communion. So we ask the Sacred Heart of Jesus for his grace, which is the life of our soul and which makes us holy and pleasing to God and gives light to the mind and strength to the will. Especially today when so many of us have been deprived of the grace of Holy Mass and confession for weeks and even months, we should share with Jesus our deep desire to go to confession and receive his forgiveness for our sins, and especially to receive him in Holy Communion. I know that I'm feeling that need very acutely right now. Uh, number two, second promise, Jesus says, I will bring peace to their homes. You know, right now, when, you know, in Los Angeles and Orange County, cities all over the country, we're living under the threat of violent demonstrations, destruction of life and property, government-imposed curfews. What better time to beg the sacred heart of Jesus to bring peace to our homes? Jesus said to his apostles, peace be to you, my peace I give you. Let him ask, to give peace, or let, ask him to give peace to our families, and especially to keep us from offending him by mortal sin. May he fill our houses with the love that comes from his sacred heart and help us to forgive each other and to live in peace. May we enjoy his peace in our family here on earth, so we, be, we may be united again with him in heaven. Number three, third promise, I'll comfort them in all their sufferings. And what a wonderful promise. I mean, Jesus knows how weak we are and how often we're anxious and afraid, but he invited us to his sacred heart when he said, come to me, all you that labor and are burdened, and I will refresh you. Take up my yoke upon you and learn of me because I I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is sweet and my burden light. May we soon be able to approach him in Holy Communion once again, so that he may give us strength and comfort. The fourth promise, I will be their safe refuge against all the snares of their enemies in life and above all in death. So again, wondering what to pray for? We should pray the Sacred Heart to be our refuge against all the evils of this world, you know, and above all at the hour of our death. How many millions of Catholics, deprived of the Holy Mass, have been making a spiritual communion that ends with the words, never let me be separated from you by sin. So let's pray for the help to fight bravely when the world and the flesh and the devil try to separate us from his grace. Let's say, Jesus, I trust in you. Trust in his strength and his grace to keep us close to him and help us at the hour of our death when we shall need him most. The fifth promise uh, of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, to those who honor the Sacred Heart of Jesus, I should say, is I will bestow abundant blessings upon all their undertakings. So we pray for, for his blessings on all that we do, all that we do at work and at home, when we study, when we pray, everything. We should desire to do everything we can to please him and for his honor. And Scripture tells us that without him, we can do nothing. But if we remain close to him and follow his guidance, all things are possible. So let's offer all of our thoughts, words, and deeds to his sacred heart. The sixth promise, sinners will find in my heart the source and the infinite ocean of mercy. How often I have offended the sacred heart of Jesus. How often. Now let's pray for true contrition. Firmly resolve not to offend him anymore. He promised to forgive sinners, so we pray for his forgiveness, especially for the opportunity to confess our sins once more and to receive him in Holy Communion so that we can receive his grace and the help that we need to do good and to avoid sin. Let's ask the Sacred Heart to have mercy on our families because all of us have displeased him sometimes. Let's ask him to forgive the sinners of the whole world, to forgive us 
and to keep us close to his sacred heart. The seventh promise is that fervent souls will mount to high perfection. You know, from the, the quest for Christian perfection in the Middle Ages to the universal call the holiness of Vatican II to St. John Paul II's program for the third millennium, in every age of the church, starting with the ministry of Christ himself, who said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Catholics have been urged to be holy, to pursue holiness through the grace of Christ. And we can best pursue holiness, uh, our Lord says, by praying to live out the Beatitudes, by asking his sacred heart to help us to be poor in spirit so that we might seek heavenly riches instead of worldly ones, to be meek so that we can overcome all our sinful anger, to seek comfort in our sorrows uh, in his sacred heart, to hunger and thirst for holiness by loving him with all our heart, to be merciful to our neighbors that we may receive his mercy, to be pure of heart so that we may be loved by his heart, to become peacemakers by keeping peace with others, but first within ourselves. Just imagine how different things could be if we were all praying this way. The eighth promise of the sacred heart, to the, or to the promise of Jesus to those who love the sacred heart, is I will bless every home in which an image of my heart will be honored. So, and we, we've said this, I think, many times on uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, that every Catholic home should display and honor an image of the sacred heart of Jesus and the immaculate heart of Mary. And we do that by asking Jesus through Mary to bless with peace and happiness the family that God chose for us on this earth, to date our, uh, dedicate ourselves to him in a special way, to honor his sacred heart in the home, uh, to, to keep us from danger, to give us help in time of need, uh, to give our families the grace to be more like the holy family. And so we should pray that he would fill our homes with his peace and love and be the king of our souls. May the sacred heart of Jesus live and reign in our families. Amen. The ninth promise of the sacred heart of Jesus to those who would honor him is tepid souls shall become fervent. Now, we've just talked about how fervent souls can uh, mount to great holiness. Here he says, tepid souls will become fervent souls. And what an important prayer for today. What an what a important prayer for me. Lord, don't let me neglect my soul. You, know, you died for my soul, so help me to do what I can to save it. Help us all to leave, lead good lives to show how much we really love you. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. So do we love him? You know, we fall sometimes. We make mistakes, and we need to ask forgiveness, and we need to be forgiving to others. So we need to pray for the grace to keep the commandments and to ask for his love and for his help to know him better. The tenth of the promises uh, for those who honor the sacred heart of Jesus is I will give to priests the gift of touching the most hardened hearts. Somebody just shared um, a video on my Facebook of them being um, removed from the church at the baptism because the uh, catechumen was not wearing a face mask. You know, we really need priests <laughs> that have a gift of touching hardened hearts, who have a gift of reaching out and not pushing away. And that's something to pray for. Sacred heart of Jesus, eternal high priest, poor Pour out the life-giving graces of your loving heart upon your priests to make them living images of you. Save souls through your priests. Give them a special grace of drawing sinners to your sacred heart that they may find forgiveness and salvation. May your kingdom come to the hearts of all people through the zealous work of truly saintly priests. The 11th promise made by Jesus to those who honor the sacred heart. Those who promote this devotion shall have have their names written in my heart, never to be effaced. So, something else to pray for, to be devoted to the Sacred Heart, to help make the devotion known and loved, even more that, uh, so that our names will be written in the heart of Jesus forever. 
and to pray that our Lord would teach us the way to follow him. Give us faith to believe his truth. And let's pray for the desire to come to the Heavenly Father through him and pray for all who honor his heart that we may become his apostles and make him known and loved. May his kingdom come through the prayers and good example of those who love the sacred heart of Jesus. And man, may I be a better example. And finally, the 12th promise, to all those who receive communion on the first Friday of the month for nine consecutive months, I will grant the gift of final repentance. To honor the sacred heart is a way to prepare for the day of death, which is the day of judgment. And all Catholics should regularly pray to use the graces that God has given us to do his will. <clears throat> Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We place our whole life into his hands and pray that he reward our devotion to his sacred heart by granting us the grace to die in the friendship of God and save our souls. And to that end, let us pray for the opportunity to go above and beyond our Sunday obligation, even to make our Sunday obligation, to once again be able to go to confession regularly and to receive him in Holy Communion, not only on Sundays, but on the first Fridays, and especially, most especially, never to take the opportunity to receive the sacraments for granted. So that's the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart as a guide to prayer. So why don't we take a moment and, and turn to him now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sacred Heart of Jesus, I give myself to you. I give you my body, my soul, all that I do or think or say. I want my whole life to be an offering to you and to make you known and loved. I also offer to you our family. Help us to obey and love you always. Keep us from all danger of soul and body. Bless our life together with your peace and love. We hope for the forgiveness of our sins through your mercy and for the graces we need to save our souls. Through Holy Communion and prayer, keep us close to your sacred heart. Sacred heart of Jesus, we believe in your love for us. Help us to love you more. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So something to think about, like I say, you know, so often when I go to prayer, and I don't know what to pray. That's one of the beauties uh, of the Catholic tradition that we have so many prayers, like the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the, the Rosary, the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, prayers that, uh, and the, the, the Psalms, of course, in the Liturgy of the Hours, these prayers that can help us to uh, express what we feel in our hearts in words that come to us from the Church or so often from the inspired words of Scripture itself. A beautiful thing, beautiful part of our tradition. Okay, back with uh, the Memorial of Blessed uh, Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church, and also uh, that part of the Church that's actually growing right now, that when we come back, uh, with lots more uh, uh, no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful. Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need covenant eyes to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to covenanteyes.com and type in the promo code VMPR to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.covenanteyes.com code VMPR live porn free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith.
This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you with us. As I mentioned earlier in the program, every Catholic home should display an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Really, both an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And as I also mentioned earlier, this past Monday was the Memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church. It's a new liturgy in the Novus Ordo, fell this year on the 1st of June. So the first day of the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Church celebrated Mary as Mother of the Church. Now, this liturgy is only a couple years old, but its origins go back to Vatican II and beyond. And it's interesting to note, I think, that while the original schemas of the Second Vatican Council envisioned a separate document dedicated to Our Lady, the Council Fathers decided instead to give over to Mary an entire chapter of Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the Church. Because the Church uh, Council Fathers wanted to emphasize Mary's role, not only in the mystery of the Incarnation and the Redemption, uh, but in the mystery of the Church as well, and and describes the due of the redeemed, and that's you and me, uh, to Mary as mother of Christ and as our mother. We have duties toward Mary. And Vatican Council wanted to emphasize that. Now, uh, a couple of years ago in, in 2018, Pope Francis instituted an annual celebration on the Monday following the Feast of Pentecost called Mary, Mother of the Church. And he said, and I quote, this celebration will help us to remember that growth in the Christian life must be anchored into the mystery of the cross, to the oblation of Christ in the Eucharistic banquet, and to the mother of the Redeemer and the mother of the redeemed, the virgin who makes her offering to God. Now, while that liturgical celebration is new, the desire for an official recognition of this title of Mary has had many supporters over the years. Uh, and St. John Paul II, in fact, was one of the strongest advocates for officially celebrating Mary's role as mother of all the Christian faithful, and he actively advocated um, for a, uh, you know, a liturgy for Mary as mother of the church, something that he mentioned in his uh, encyclical Redemptoris Mater, Mother of the Redeemer, where he recalled the words of St. Paul VI. And I quote, at the Second Vatican Council, Paul VI solemnly proclaimed that Mary is the mother of the church. That is, he's quoting uh, Paul VI now, mother of the entire Christian people. (coughs) Excuse me. Both faithful and pastors. Then later in 1968, in the profession of faith that uh, we call the credo of the people of God, Paul VI restated this truth in an even more forceful way in these words, we believe that the most holy mother of God, the new Eve, the mother of the church, carries on in heaven her maternal role with regard to the members of Christ, cooperating in the birth and development of divine life in the souls of the redeemed. So he talks, he mentions Mary as new Eve, and that's, that comes from the Bible, who presents Mary to us as a new Eve, and Jesus is a new Adam, because Jesus and Mary make it possible for us to regain the graces lost by the original Adam and Eve. So the first Adam and Eve were created sinless, but fell into sin. The new Adam is Jesus, Jesus, who obviously has no sin, and the new Eve is Mary, who was conceived without original sin, and like her divine son, also remained throughout her life without sin. And the Bible then shows us how Mary is the new Eve. You know, um, the first word of the most popular Marian prayer, the Ave Maria, is Ave in Latin, Hail Mary, uh, from the words of St. Gabriel, Ave Gratia Plena, Hail Full of Grace. Now, St. Augustine said, you reverse the spelling, and Ave becomes Eva, which is Latin for Eve. 
And he pointed out that their roles are also reversed because the firstly Eve listened to a bad angel, right? The serpent in the garden and disobeyed God. Then the new Eve, Mary, listens to the good angel, St. Gabriel, and obeys God. In the garden, the first Eve encouraged Adam, and he fell into sin. At the wedding at Cana, Mary, the new Eve, encouraged Jesus, the new Adam, to perform his first miracle. Woman was the, the name that Adam gave to Eve when she first appeared in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. And after the fall, God the Father promised another woman who would crush the head of Satan in Genesis 3.15. And that woman, as we know, is Mary, because she's the one who gave birth to the Messiah. In the book of Revelation, St. John also tells of the woman who has now been bodily assumed and crowned in heaven. So you've got in the very first book and the very last book of the Bible, this woman. And likewise, the very beginning and the very end of the earthly ministry of Jesus, we find the woman. Because Jesus calls Mary woman, both at the wedding at Cana and from the Holy Cross. And the biblical authors use that name woman to reveal Mary as the new Eve. Well, in a general audience in 1997, uh, St. John Paul said, Pope Paul VI would have liked the Second Vatican Council itself to have proclaimed Mary mother of the church, that is, of the whole people of God, both the faithful and their pastors. So he did so himself in his speech at the end of the council's third session in November of 1964, also asking that, quote, henceforth, the Blessed Virgin be honored and invoked by this title by all the Christian people. And in particular, John Paul II eagerly approved this title of Mary because of its potential to influence the Church. He was hoping that the Church of the Third Millennium would look to Mary as a model for imitation. And he explains this in Redemptoris Mater. He says, in her new motherhood in the Spirit, Mary embraces each and every one in the Church and embraces each and every one through the church. In this sense, Mary, mother of the church, is also the church's model. Indeed, as Paul VI hopes and asks, the church must draw from the Virgin Mother of God the most authentic form of perfect imitation of Christ. So our job as the redeemed is, number one, the imitation of Christ, and we do that by following Mary as our perfect model. Uh, Pope says, as Christians raise their eyes with faith to Mary in the course of their earthly, earthly pilgrimage, they strive to increase in holiness. Mary, the exalted daughter of Zion, helps all her children, wherever they may be, and whatever their condition, to find in Christ the path to the Father's house. So what's St. John Paul talking about when he says, in her new motherhood in the Spirit? Well, this is a direct reference to the words of Jesus spoken from the altar of the Holy Cross. Our Lord looked down upon his mother and the disciple whom he loved and said, Woman, behold thy son. And he tells the disciple, Behold thy mother. Our Blessed Lady was pleased to know that the earthly farewell of her divine son, his, his last will and testament before his death, he might say, should express a request that was so dear to her maternal heart that our Lord desired that Mary become the mother not only of St. John, but of all those for whom he was shedding his most precious blood. And St. John represented us all at the foot of the cross when our Lord said to him, Behold thy mother. And just as he gave us into her maternal care, so our Blessed Lady was also Jesus' parting gift of love to us, because he knows very well that his people need a mother's love and her tender protection. And so he gives us the Blessed Virgin is our life, our sweetness, and our hope, our most gracious advocate. But despite this consolation, the crucifixion fulfills the prophecy uh, you know, of the piercing of our Blessed Lady's soul. Remember what Simeon the prophet said to Mary at the presentation, and thy own soul a sword shall pierce that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. So what does the piercing of Mary's soul reveal in you and in me? Uh, in his last discourse, before he entered into, our pa into his passion, our Lord told the apostles, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So the question is, do I love Mary as Christ loves her? You know, some people say that Catholics love the Blessed Virgin too much. Well, we can never love her as much as Christ did. 
Do we thank him for giving us so good and loving a mother? Do we, like the beloved apostle, like it says in the scripture, do we take her to our own, take her into our home, honoring her in our homes the same as we honor the sacred heart of Jesus? Or do we find Mary in devotion too, too sappy, too sentimental, too unsophisticated? Do, do even Catholics wonder if we really put too much emphasis on Mary? And then you remember our Lord's words, behold thy mother. Think about Mary as she's cradling the lifeless body of Jesus in her arms, the same way that she once cradled him in, when he was a, a baby. Look at the, the great uh, Pieta paintings and, and statues and, and look into the eyes of the Blessed Virgin. Reflect on the pain in her sinless soul. That's reflected in the words of Lamentations 1.12. O ye that pass by the way, attend and see if there be any sorrow like to my sorrow. Think about the words of the prophet Simeon and consider that the piercing of our blessed lady's soul reveals the thoughts of the heart. In other words, our love and compassion for Mary is the measure of our commitment and fidelity to her son. So where the former is lacking, where, where people don't love and compassionate Mary, the latter is lacking also. Right? If you don't love Mary, then you're not going to, to keep the commandments of Jesus. It's like the old saying goes, no Mary, no Jesus. But here we see that if you do not know Mary, then you cannot know Jesus. Back in the Middle Ages, um, knights used to place an image of Our Lady on the inside of their shields. And the idea is that if you know, you're in the, the, the fiery crucible of battle, you can look down and and cast your eyes upon the Blessed Virgin as a source of courage. You know, Richard the Lionheart had an image of Mary on the inside of his shield. Uh, also in the, in the legends of King Arthur, Arthur himself and uh, Sir Gawain. Gawain has a, a vision of, uh, an image of Mary on the inside of his shield to help him to have, a, you know, as a, a source of fortitude in times of trial and temptation. You know, when he's being tempted to an adulterous affair, he sees the image of Mary and resists. So, as the church celebrates Mary, the mother of the church, my prayer is that her image would always be emblazoned upon the shield of your faith, and that you and I and all Catholics will, you know, be an example that we will reveal the thoughts of the heart by the example of our love and compassion for our blessed Queen Mother. All right, when we come back, we're going to be talking about what part of the church is actually growing when every other part of the church is in decline. I'm guessing that if you've been a listener to this uh, network for very long, the answer will not surprise you. But some of the statistics might. Stick with us. More known Nonsense Catholic coming right up. Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app uh. for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. Healthcare news today seems to be coming from everywhere and everyone. It's confusing, at least, and untrustworthy at the worst. Dr. Asetta is a faithful Catholic in the Kern County community. He is trustworthy, well-researched, and will only give expert opinion on matters in his own specialty. Catholic teaching at its entirety is of utmost importance to Dr. Asetta. Give Dr. Asetta a call for your obstetrics and gynecological needs at 661-695-6617. 661-695-6617.
This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic, and I want to say thank you for the, uh, your support listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, especially uh, those of you that are that are donating. Um, really appreciate it. Without you, there's no us, and without your support, we can't continue. And it's been a long road here, uh, especially during this time of uh, shelter-in-place, lockdown, quarantine, whatever you want to call it, and lots of technical challenges um, using the... Uh, remote technology and so forth. Thank you for bearing with us. Appreciate it. Okay. I am sure that I do not need to tell you that by virtually every measurable standard, mass attendance and vocations to marriage and families, to schools and universities, uh, abortion and contraception, Catholic church in the West has been in sharp decline morally and spiritually and physically in for decades. <clears throat> and American Catholics attending the Novus Ordo, you know, just ordinary Catholics have been surveyed or polled repeatedly over these 50 years in terms of their beliefs and practices by, you know, groups like the Pew Research Center or the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate at Georgetown and others. And, you know, I'll let you consider these rather alarming statistics from a, uh, a book came out a couple of years ago, very popular. It was called Forming Intentional Disciples by Sherry Waddell. And there's all sorts of diocesan programs trying to form intentional disciples now uh, because of this book and, and the scary statistics, which include, but are not limited to, uh, the fact that only 30% of Catholics who were raised Catholic are still practicing. Actually, that number is down about 10% since that book came out. 10% uh, of all the adults in the United States are ex-Catholics. Uh, as I've often said, if ex-Catholic was a denomination, it would be the second largest in the country. 79%, almost 80% of cradle Catholics become unaffiliated and cease identifying as Catholic by the age of 23 today. And currently, for Americans raised Catholic, the best guarantee of stable church attendance uh, as an adult is to become a Protestant. Now, I think we've got some counter numbers uh, to that, but... The body of research up to this point has not included responses from Catholics that attend the traditional Latin Mass. Now, there's we're about uh, 150,000 strong. That's Catholics that, that go to the traditional Latin Mass um, in diocesan churches or or parishes that are, um, you know, like FSSP or whatever that are uh, under the local bishop. So this doesn't include the Society of St. Pius X or, or any of the other groups that are uh, outside of the official structure of the church. This is only uh, those, those 489 churches uh, around the country that are diocesan churches that have the traditional Latin Mass. That, by the way, you know, prior to 2007, when Pope Benedict liberated the traditional Mass, uh, there was only a handful, really a, a veritable or a virtual handful of, of such masses. And now there is a traditional mass, uh, at least on Sunday in every diocese in the country. So we can see that's, I mean, that's just a phenomenal growth, um, in just a very few years. And now, as you may also know, I consider myself a traditional Catholic. I started attending the traditional Latin mass at a diocesan parish with my family. Um, and I still, I still do. I wrote a book about it for Ignatius press called confession of a traditional Catholic to help people kind of understand the movement. And I hasten to add that when I use the term traditional Catholic, I'm not talking about people that exclusively attended the traditional Latin Mass. For me, a traditional Catholic is one who can say the act of faith and really mean it. Someone who can say, oh my God, I firmly 
necessarily believe all the truths that the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches, because you have revealed them who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Not some truths, not the truths that I'm comfortable with, all the truths the Catholic Church believes and teaches, because they have been revealed by God. You know, But because the, the term traditional is so much baggage, that's kind of why I've come to prefer no-nonsense Catholic. Because you can certainly hold the Catholic faith whole and entire while attending the ordinary form of the Mass. All of that said, however, the Church is still in demographic freefall, except for traditional Latin Mass Catholics. Now, in 2018, Father Donald Kloster of the Diocese of Bridgeport out in Connecticut realized that the quickly growing number of traditional Latin Mass-only parishes now permits survey research for that demographic, and he undertook to study, uh, uh, undertook a study to measure the fruit of the two Masses by directly comparing responses from people who attend the traditional Mass to the same questions that were asked of the ordinary form Mass attendees. And the results covered seven different topics. The approval of contraception, approval of abortion, weekly mass attendance, approval of same-sex marriage, the percentage of income donated to the church, annual confession amongst weekly mass attendees, and the rate of fertility among Catholic women. <clears throat> so approval of contraception. Traditional Latin mass Catholics, 2% approved contraception. The Novus Ordo, it's 89%. Approval of abortion. They managed to find 1% the traditional Latin math Catholics that thought that abortion was okay in some circumstances, opposed to 51%, a majority of Novus Ordo Catholics approve abortion. Let that sink in. Weekly mass attendance. In other words, the very bare bones to remain Catholic, which is the obligation to go to mass on Sunday. All right, Novus Ordo Catholics, 22%. Traditional Latin mass Catholics, 99%. Approval of St. Same-sex marriage, Novus Ordo Catholic, 67%, a solid majority, 2% amongst traditional Latin Mass Catholics. The percentage of income donated to the church amongst Novus Ordo Catholics, a little over 1%, and traditional Latin Mass Catholics, 6%. All right, so six times as much. Annual, at least annual confession amongst those who attend Sunday Mass every Sunday, right? Novus Ordo, it's 25%. So 25% of the 22%. And traditional Latin Mass Catholics, 98%. Go to confession at least once a year because it's a precept of the church. And then finally, the fertility rate among women who uh, worship the Novus Ordo is a little over 2%. And traditional Latin Mass mothers, it's 3.6 children. So regardless of which Mass you attend, Ask yourself, which one of these two groups do you have the most in common with? And with apologies to Jeff Foxworthy, if you go to confession at least once a year, you might be a traditional Catholic. If you don't approve of abortion, you might be a traditional Catholic, etc. I think it was Dr. Brant Petrie that pointed out uh, years ago that the difference between the ordinary form and the extraordinary form, the, the traditional Mass, is that so much of what used to be explicit in the old mass is only implicit in the new rite, if it's there at all. So references to such things as the wrath of God, mass is a sacrifice, sin is the greatest evil, hell, these things were either toned down or removed altogether from the new mass on the basis that, well, everybody already knows that stuff. And the liturgy should give, not give us any cause to be uncomfortable when we go to mass. And a generation later, the vast majority of Catholics don't go to mass at all. And they don't even realize that they have an obligation under pain of sin to go to Mash on Sundays or, or to go to confession once a year or, or not to receive communion if you've missed Mass under your, you know, through your own, own fault without going to confession first. So today, I mean, Sherry Riddell has to write a book to let Catholic leaders know that they need to form disciples. And Protestant converts tell us that we have to study the Bible and, and charismatics tell us that we need to join prayer groups all in order to recover what Catholics used to acquire naturally just by going to Mass. So like many things in life, we don't realize what we have till it's gone. And I think that's one reason that, that traditional Latin Mass parishes are growing instead of declining. So this year, Father Closter produced a follow-up survey completed just this last March, right before the COVID-19 business. 
consciousness. And this was a poll of traditional Latin mass Catholics in the important age demographic of 18 to 39. And here's what he found. 40% of these 18 to 39 traditional Latin mass Catholics are married. 53% are single. 1% are priests and 2% in the religious life and 4% in formation for priestly or religious life. Now that's important for growth because what that means is exactly opposite of the Novus Ordo, there are more men and women in formation for priestly and religious vocations than there are currently ordained or consecrated. 80% of men and women in this age group say they considered a vocation. 99% goes to mass every Sunday. And it's interesting, this really fascinated me, a whopping 90% were not raised traditional Latin mass Catholics. But a solid majority, 84%, were raised by two married parents. 65% had fathers who regularly attended church, and we know how important that is. 23% have one sibling. 20% have two siblings. 19% have three siblings. 13% have four siblings. And 21%, a little more than a fifth, have five to nine siblings. Right, so the highest percentage in this group have five to nine brothers and sisters, and 4% have 10 or more. So you see, family is a huge part of the picture. But when we turn to what influenced them to start attending the traditional Latin Mass, another picture emerges. Only 16% say their parents led them to the traditional Latin Mass. 13% say it was friends. 12% curiosity. 3% was the music, you know, and other factors. But the number one factor that leads 18 to 39-year-olds to the traditional Latin mass, some 35% of them, more than a third of the total, is reverence, which is so sadly lacking in the typical celebration of the Novus Ordo Mise. So this survey confirms that the traditional Latin mass is experiencing a high volume of participation and interest precisely in the 18 to 39 demographic, which is distinctly underrepresented in the modern Novus Ordo parishes. You know, go to mass and how much gray hair do you see? Now, I count myself blessed to assist with my family at the traditional Latin Mass on Sundays and Holy Days at a diocesan church. And I really consider the widespread uh, celebration of the extraordinary form of the Mass, as well as the corrected English translation of the ordinary form from 2010, uh, to, you know, demonstrate the prediction of Benedict XVI. When he was Cardinal Ratzinger, he said the church of the third millennium would be smaller, but stronger. You know, and there's a lot of people who think you can't turn back the clock. But the fact that our culture is wallowing in a morass of pornography and adultery and homosexuality and divorce, contraception, child abuse, et cetera, et cetera, it's proof you can turn back the clock because all of that was epidemic in the pagan Roman Empire before Christianity came along. And it was precisely the Catholic Church valiantly communicating God's grace to a hostile culture that led to the birth of Christendom and produced an army of saints. For two millennia, the Church has been at the vanguard of true progress. Every Holy Mass turns back the clock all all the way to Calvary. In confession, Christ turns back the clock on our sins to restore our state of grace. And with his help, we can turn back the liturgical clock. Our Lord Jesus said, now is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that, brother and sister, is no nonsense. I'm Matthew Arnold from Most Powerful Radio. See you next week. Until then, God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.